Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there is a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going, and also help to keep the show light on advertising. Contributions start as low as $0.99 per month, with two other brackets at $4.99 per month or $9.99 per month. If you aren't comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I have also set up a Cash App profile for the show. One-time contributions can be sent through Cash App to the show email address, which is MrJeffersonian at Outlook.com, or to the show's cash tag, which is $MrJeffersonian. And keep in mind, with Mr. Jeffersonian, there is no period behind the um, abbreviated Mr., so no period behind MR. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. In other show-related news, if there is a topic you'd like for me to cover, or if you just have general questions for me, then I can be contacted at the show email address, which again is Jeffersonian at Outlook.com, or through the show's MeWe group, which is titled The Jeffersonian Tradition. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. It is a private group, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invitation. If you aren't familiar with MeWe, contacts are the same as friends on Facebook. And with all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're actually going to be doing an interview. Uh, for privacy reasons, our guest today has asked to remain anonymous, which I totally respect. But do you mind sharing as much as you're comfortable with about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a married mom of two. Um, I consider my kids uh, my full-time job, my first job. Um, my second job, which actually pays the bills, is I work full-time as an engineer, so that's what I pretty much spend my life doing. And when I'm not doing that, um, I get involved in uh, political activism uh, to try and uh, help shape a future for my children um, that is much better than what I was able to have today. Absolutely. And so political activism is actually sort of how we started correspondence. So uh, for anybody not listening to the Tom Woods show, you definitely need to hop on that and join his Tom Woods elite group. And that is actually where our guest and I started corresponding was through that group on MeWe. Uh, now, with Tom, did you discover him through his work on COVID, or have you been a listener of his for a while? I've been a listener of Tom's for quite a while now. Um, I kind of discovered him through the Mises Institute, which I discovered through the Ron Paul presidential campaigns back in 2012 and 2008, um, when I really started getting involved um, with politics back then so I just started to kind of dig around and really uh, resonated with a lot of the messages and started reading a lot of authors that I'd never heard of before in my life and they've uh, definitely um, shaped my worldview a lot differently than where I came from and uh, definitely for the better in my opinion. Absolutely. And so the reason I wanted to bring you on today is that you and I have discussed an idea for a state-level electoral college, and you're actually in a position to at least catch a politician's ear about the topic. So can you tell the audience what you like about the idea and why you think it would be beneficial to Texas or any other state for that matter? Yeah, so um, 
Looking at how politics is currently done in Texas, uh, statewide offices are elected on a plurality vote, which means basically the person who has the highest number of votes for, say, governor um, during the election wins that race. Even if it's not a majority, if, say, there's a split field and they get 30% of the vote, if that's most of the vote, they get the governorship, um, which really alienates pretty much 70% of the state population um, that voted uh, in the election. So at our federal level, we, you know, we have the Electoral College, which um, is basically there to protect the smaller states um, from the tyranny of the majority. And so we have that kind of electoral college set up where the senators and the representatives um, equal the votes that go towards the presidential uh, candidate and not just, you know, who wins the popular vote. Um, so bringing that down to the state level, you'd have something very similar where if you use the counties that make up a state, similar how you have the states that make up the United States, um, and you give each of those counties one vote where the majority vote for a an official running for election that one vote would go to that candidate and then whoever has the majority of all the overall counties would then become that statewide elected official uh, now texas is an interesting state um, in that it has 254 counties which is the state with the most counties in the whole country uh, being that's the second largest state um, it has so many counties you definitely have um, a, a large division of the populace and by having the counties elect the governor versus the popular majority you give more power to the rural areas and you don't let the major cities the major population centers such as Houston and Austin and Dallas control who runs the state and you get a more uh, widespread representation for the entire population which is, is really what we're trying to do here it's to protect the rights of the individual the smallest minority that exists and that is ultimately what we're trying to do um, to prevent a tyranny of the majority of a urban population from controlling the rural population and in Texas that's kind of important because it is such a large state um, it has a, a vast diversity of, of areas in it. West Texas is completely different than the Gulf. And so you want a governor that is going to kind of try and balance all of those interests and not only care about what happens to Houston. If you want to care about Houston that much, you should run for the mayor of Houston, not for the governor of Texas. So it, it's really just about protecting that individual minority that's out there, similar to how the federal government electoral college is set up. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, and there's even a lot of ways that this can be implemented further, right? So I, I personally would be a fan of requiring a two thirds majority vote on statewide tax initiatives within the, the state. Um, so I, I think that would actually be a good thing because that's really getting down to government by consent of the government. And I also, um, I, I don't know how you'll feel about this because I, I think you recently moved to Texas from out of state, but I would also support a mandatory waiting period for new citizens, um, this can be sort of left up to the county preference, but my personal idea would be a statewide minimum waiting period of two years and then give the counties an option to require up to five years before uh, new citizens could vote. So what, what would you think about something like that? Uh, I see the appeal in it. I really do. Um, and probably this is my, my selfish perspective is that for someone who, like myself, who, who really wants to keep Texas 
Texas, Texas, um, I couldn't be allowed to vote. And so I, that doesn't eliminate me from being politically active, you know, you know, going out there for the candidates that are running and campaigning for them or starting my own political causes for education um, on civics and history and things of that nature. So I can see it both ways. I'm pretty sure it would probably lead to some sort of lawsuit um, against the Civil Rights Act or some sort of thing like that where you are discriminating for voting rights, um, which has been a big deal in the news in the last few months. You've seen laws in Florida and Georgia and Arizona. Um, Texas has tried to put some uh, changes to voting uh, voting laws out there, and it, it's caused a lot of consternation. Um, even something as simple as changing the hours in which you can vote. So if you're telling people you can't vote for two years, I'm sure it would just cause an up in arms, just insanity um, out there. Um, so I don't know if I'm completely favor of that um but i can totally see the argument for it oh absolutely and i i'm sure it would cause a lot of screeching and uh honestly that cynically that makes me happy because i see it as a chance to enact some nullification in addition to so i I guess kind of rub some salt in the wound but um yeah that I, i would like to see that just from a perspective of being able to preserve what's already there because some states, Colorado, where I live, is one of them. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like South Dakota is starting to be one. But some states, I, I mean, they really are just getting ramrodded by people coming in from California, uh, New York, Illinois, so on and so forth. And they, I just think it would give them an, an additional tool to be able to fight back. But I know in Tom's group, you mentioned the effort that you've been putting into studying Texas state election law. Um, with that, what is the oddest and or the most random things that you found there? So reading through the law, I mean, there's nothing strange, really, that's in it. Like, oh, you have to, you know, hop on one foot while you vote or something weird like that. Um, It's more of just the language in general in which um, the code is written. It screams lawyer all across the face of it. And it captures all these, like, what if scenarios just down to if, if you could think of a caveat to a, to a law it's written in there to either allow it or prevent it down to like what they feel is like the lowest level that it could get to so it, it's just really funny reading the, the legalese and the, the lawyer speak that is just in the almost literal 1000 pages that is just the election code of Texas uh, so that, that's what I found the most entertaining when reading through it is it's, it's just screams lawyer. Absolutely. So is, is that the like the original text or would you say that's more so amendments or both? It's, it's both. Um, as you read through the law, you can see um, where they've made amendments to it. It'll say, oh, this was amended per this legislative session per bill yada 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 section so and so um so you can see where it's been modified over time for various reasons but it it, it's all just very lawyer-esque which is interesting having the that much legalese written so much that way it's interesting to hear that so just a, a brief history lesson here for the audience uh texas's current constitution was written and ratified back in 1876 and it was written in the aftermath of Reconstruction, actually right towards the end of Reconstruction. 
and they they had a lot of fears, uh, especially about an over energetic executive. So they introduced the concept of the plural executive. So they they actually fractured the power of the governor's office, and they were they were definitely afraid of of ever having another radical regime take over power like that uh, for that roughly twelve year period after the war had ended. So it's interesting to hear that they're kind of, it sounds like carrying that through even to today when it comes to the amendments. So uh, that that is definitely an interesting uh, development for sure. Now, I know recently you had a chance to actually sit down with your political contact and kind of throw this idea about. Uh, how would you say that he or she received the idea? Uh, they were, uh, him and his wife, yeah, he was extremely receptive of the idea. Um, when I kind of explained, you know, the, the one, I call it one county, one vote. That's kind of like what I've decided to name my platform. Uh, and, you know, he's a lifelong Texan, so he kind of, he, he knows the, how Texas politics have gone over time and whatnot. And uh, he thought it was a great way to help preserve what is, you know, that uh, historical culture of Texas. Um, when you think of Texas, you I tend to think of a very independent state. You know, it was once its own own country, the Republic of Texas. So it, it's just that kind of Texas is not just a place; it's an attitude. And preserving that um, by having all the various counties vote for a candidate that they feel represents their county the best, and then have that overall representation for Texas um, be really what is Texas. Um, he was really, really encouraged by it. Um, he's like, wow, there'd be like 200 counties that would go red uh, versus the blue counties, which tend to be more towards the heavy population centers like San Antonio and Houston and Austin and uh, Dallas and Fort Worth. Um, and El Paso, kind of along along the border. Uh, so he was really receptive of it. Uh, he was more concerned about how would you get that idea out there. Um, and I'm like, well, that's what political activism is, making friends and having conversations and just spreading the word and just informing people um, and having them pass it along to their friends and their friends and their friends and then meeting with, you know, local political leaders and catching their ear. Um, and you just kind of build a grassroots movement that way. And he was, I think, surprised that I thought this much through it in the short amount of time that I've actually lived in Texas, which is going on about six weeks now. <laughs> so, and just how I kind of understood the counties and the politics um, already, I think he was like, oh, wow, she's actually kind of serious about this. Um, that's really interesting. He was really in favor of the idea. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's a lot of different angles that we can approach this from. So even, even though right now it, it probably seems like, hey, we just want to keep Texas Republican as long as possible, there, there's actually a lot of benefits to the political minorities here. Um, so especially if we really implement this Calhoun style, then you could say, okay, well, look, not only do you have to win a majority of counties, you also have to win a two-thirds majority. And, you know, Democratic counties could block certain things that they didn't necessarily agree with in that fashion. Now, right now, it probably would function to the to the benefit more so of Republicans just because so, so much of the state geographically is red. But, you know, in time, th this is a good thing for both sides. And honestly, all, all it takes is them being able to see, hey, this is actually a way to fracture power instead of consolidate it. 
So there's definitely um, different ways that we could approach it as far as getting the idea out whenever we talk about it. I just want to jump on that, that decentralization of power for a second. I, I personally can't understand the centralization of power. I don't like controlling other people. I'm like, you do you, I do me. You're not hurting anyone. I don't care. And if people accepted decentralization, then you could have that if you say, I wanted to live in, I live in Grayson County, where it's more conservative, I can live in Grayson County and Grayson will do their thing. If I want to live where it's a little bit, you know, more liberal, I'll, I'll move down to Travis and and live there where it's a little bit different. And you can kind of have that ability to go where you are accepted and people around you want to live that way instead of trying to, again, create this collectivist tyranny over everyone where everyone has to think like you or you're going to make them silent. I can't understand that position because I'm just like, you do you, I do me. So empowering counties, decentralization, um, you touched on nullification, uh, are huge tools that actually empower people more if they took the time to actually look at it from that perspective. Oh, absolutely. And especially nullification. So ideally for, for me, I would actually like to see, and Calhoun thought this too, I would like to see counties basically become miniature states. Um, now, granted, I, w I want the state to be the final arbiter of state law, but I would love to see the counties be able to take on different types of responsibilities um, that we normally would associate just with the state. So if the state passes a, a law that's against the state constitution then have the counties be empowered and emboldened to stand up and say we will not enforce this and practice their own version of nullification and i i really do think that would be a really great thing again just fracturing that power and spreading it out in a more horizontal fashion for sure but where do you think texas politics will be in five to ten years if such a system as this or no check is given to the people against those major urban areas well to be to be straightforward, they're gonna, it's going to look like California or New York. It's, uh, if, if you haven't noticed, uh, with the latest census, um, New York and California lost seats because all their population's leaving and places like Texas and Florida are gaining seats because that's where the people are moving to. It's, it's those policies that are driving them out. Um, the unfortunate thing that I've seen when people do leave, and I think you can see it as it's happened in Colorado, as you are aware, is that they have left these blue states and they've moved into red states and now the red states are becoming purple states and they're slowly becoming more blue, um, which has been very apparent in Colorado. But the same thing is gonna happen in Texas. People are, are moving into Dallas heavily. People are moving into Austin heavily. You know, irony is you have people like Elon Musk moving into Austin, and then I think Michael Malice is supposed to be moving to Austin, too. So you get these interesting groups of people that are moving to Austin. Um, and so you have an interesting dichotomy there, but overall, it's they leave the blue states because of the policies of those states. And then they move to the red states, and they vote the same way for the reasons they left. Um, it's just the, those policies haven't played out yet. So, yeah, if, if there's not a, 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 say, a check and balance put into place, uh, Texas is going to drift more, more towards purple and then towards blue, unfortunately. 
No, I, I agree. And their their election uh, margins are getting thinner and thinner. I mean, every every election cycle, we're already seeing that happen. And it's so infuriating to me that people leave these god-awful states and, and the level of cognitive dissonance, it's like they cannot connect the dots to say, hey, wait a minute, I was voting for all the same stuff. And well, let me just keep voting the same way. And, and maybe 20 years from now, I'll, I'll be looking for a new haven because I you know, carved a husk out of this one, but it, it's so infuriating. And that I'm going to tie that back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, even though you sound like a, a good Californian, uh, you know, a lot of them don't necessarily hold the same views as you. And, and that's where I really think some sort of mandatory minimum for being able to vote. I, I mean, we got to give the states a way to fight back against this. I, short of being able to just completely ban uh, people coming in from certain states, which I, I don't personally think that would be a good thing, but short of being able to do something like that, I, I mean, ha- how do you protect that culture? Um, well, I think a lot of it, it starts with civics education. Um, we don't really have civics education anymore. Um, they've kind of done away with that. I think parents really do need to become more involved in their children's education. Um, The educational system has been uh, overrun with progressives, as I call them. And they are, you know, the, the people who support things like the 1619 Project and the people who are supporting uh, critical race theory. And we've seen a lot of backlash, I think, I'll call this one positive I'm going to attribute to COVID is that with all the children being at home on Zoom classes, I think parents really got an awakening to what their children were actually being exposed to. And I don't think a lot of them were very happy about it. Um, I've seen videos of parents getting outraged, um, about having, you know, critical race theory taught um, to their children. Um, I think there was even a parent who was arrested for speaking out against it at a school board meeting, which to me is insane. So parents need to become involved. Um, The curriculum really needs to be evaluated. We we really do need to get just back to basics, Um, reading, writing, math. I mean, Worldwide, our educational levels have fallen over the years, which is kind of a sad statistic for what is considered one of the greatest countries on earth. In California, I think they were ranked 49th in education in the United States, even though they spend some of the most money per capita per student. Um, so it's not a money problem. Uh, it is, it's a culture thing, valuing education and hard work and we've kind of gone away from that quite a bit, I feel, um, in our culture in and of itself. So looking at how education, parental involvement, going back to the basics and, and teaching that way, I think, would have a, a major impact on, on, on moving forward with understanding our history better and teaching, you know, real history about communism, what... Stalin did to his people is kind of swept under the rug quite a bit. I think uh, Hitler takes a lot of the fanfare for murder uh, in the 1930s and 40s, even though uh, Stalin kind of puts him uh, to shame when it comes to the the murder tallies. But just things like that, because I I see a lot of people walking around, oh, communism sounds great. And I'm like, ah, no, 
it's kind of not. So just basic education, I think, would be really beneficial for uh, helping to keep Texas, not only Texas, but the rest of the states um, on a more even keel. Absolutely. And I think education is great for the long term. I, I guess I'm just more co- so concerned about the short term because, you know, they the, the regressives did not take over all these positions overnight. I, I mean, that that's something they literally have spent decades and decades trying to accomplish and, and they have done it to great effect. So I, I guess I'm just a little bit more uh, myopic, uh, you know, looking at the shorter time frame and saying we've got to do something before all of these states start start going that way um, because, unfortunately, um, at least as of right now, now I think demographics are, are going to be interesting with this because I, I think over time, uh, at least in the short term, yes, I think Texas is going to trend more blue. But it seems like a lot of people on that side of the spectrum, they don't want to have kids. Um, if they do have kids, their their kids don't want to necessarily have kids. And I'm, I'm relatively young. I'm 28. And I've noticed a lot of people in my age bracket, they, if they do want to have kids, they tend to be a lot more conservative. And even though that also is going to take a long time, I actually think ultimately demographics may be in our favor just because the other side is not reproducing. And that, that to me is a really interesting, um, I guess, dilemma to study because you would think they would be all about like we have to self-perpetuate so we can keep this this uh, framework in place and they, and they don't necessarily seem to be thinking that far ahead so I don't know it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, I would say more in on like the maybe 40 to 50 year time frame but what have you observed that yeah I have and, and I actually read an article the other day that was talking about the culture wars in America and that culture wars are really the long game they are the 20 30 40 year time span for those culture wars to really pan out and it's it was framed in the terms of they start off gradually and then they're sudden and I think that's kind of what we've seen happen in say the last 30 years in the United States I would say probably the last financial collapse was a huge trigger for a major culture shift um, that occurred so it's definitely a long game with respect to, to birth rates, yeah, they are all really low. Um, I think this is my opinion, just thinking off the top of my head, that that might be why I'll say the left, they get, they're really passionate about uh, immigration, and it might be that they see that they're not reproducing their own numbers, so they'll just try and capture the hearts and minds of immigrants who want to come to this country um, to put them in their, I'll say, side of the ledger. That could be a, a reason. Um, doesn't mean it's the correct reasoning, but it could be a reason. But even though I think is changing a little bit, uh, down in Hidalgo County, there's a town called McAllen. It's the largest town in Hidalgo County. They just elected a Republican mayor. Um, and this is like a blue stronghold all across the border, uh, the border um, counties. So there could be some prevailing winds towards um, certain demographics um, becoming more conservative. Um, I believe in the last presidential election, uh, President Trump actually garnered more of the Hispanic and African-American vote than any Republican presidential candidate before him. 
So there was some sort of message that was just resonating with demographics that didn't typically look red or Republican or conservative or whatever label you want to put on it. So I I think there is a messaging out there um, that is beneficial for more of the conservative, libertarian view of the world um, that, if framed properly, can help bring more people um, towards the center and and, and be a little bit more moderate and try and and look at the world from that perspective. So that's kind of like my little, little hope of looking at voting patterns, demographics, near-term, long-term, and how you can kind of make the changes to kind of keep that uh, balance of power and move forward from there. Absolutely. And then with you having moved into Texas from California, um, I just out of curiosity's sake, what actually spurred that? And then what are some of the pros and cons of each state? So COVID was probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, it was just it was just in March of this year. I just got really edgy living in California. I'd already seen the inflation that was starting to happen. That people were saying, "Oh, it's not happening." I'm like, "Yes, it is." There was crime rates were increasing, homelessness was increasing, the draconian COVID restrictions um, were out of control. The county DA. Um, pretty much just doesn't enforce laws at all. They're letting 70,000 criminals out of California state prisons because of, for the safety of the prisoners for COVID. I can't reconcile the the strangeness in that statement. Um, So I just got really edgy. So I started uh, looking um, for jobs out of state and my company is, I'll say, fortunate to have positions all across the United States. And they just happened to have a position in my skill set in Texas. So I applied, got an interview, interviewed, pretty much got hired right away. Even though it's still an internal thing, I have to be hired. Um, And within about a month, I was going from living in California to living in Texas and getting all that set up and finding a house out in Texas, which was Uh, We got lucky there because the housing is crazy out here because of so many people moving to the state. Um, It's driven housing prices through the roof. Um, So that's that's what kind of got me uh, out of California and into Texas in a matter of three months. Um, That's how quickly it happened. And pros and cons, I mean, one of the pros of California is it is a gorgeous state. Um, you have the, the beaches, you have the, the beautiful deserts, you have the mountains, you have, you know, the redwood forests up in NorCal. Um, it, so it's just, it has just a, a natural beauty to it, um, that, you know, not many other states can say they have. Um, unfortunately that beauty comes with heavy penalties in the form of taxes, um, income taxes are really high there. Gas taxes are high there, and I think they just increased them again. The sales taxes are really high. It's just tax, 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 tax. Um, they're trying to, we had something called Prop 13 in California that was kind of a grandfather clause for property taxes that they've been trying to repeal for a long time now um, because it limited the percentage of property tax. And so that's like the only saving grace for property taxes right now in California. Otherwise, 
just going to go through the roof. In comparison to Texas, Texas taxes are, on the most part, lower. There is no state income tax, which was a, a huge pay increase right off the bat for me because I went from paying like 9 or 10% in income ta- state income tax to zero. Um, so that's just awesome right there. The gas taxes are lower, paying like 280 a gallon right now for gas. It's like, I think California average is 430 a gallon right now. So it's really high. Um, I'd say the one negative about Texas is the property taxes are ridiculously high. And they're like assessed yearly on the value of your home. So that you can actually argue with the county assessor's office over the value of your home every year and how much you have to pay in property taxes. I'd say that's probably the one, the one negative from a tax standpoint. Whether it's summer here, it's hot, it's humid, but you're going to kind of get weather pretty much anywhere in the country outside of Southern California and South Florida. Um, so it's not really a deal breaker for me, uh, the weather. Um, if you like mountains, Texas is probably not for you. It's kind of flat, um, but it's still really pretty um, up here in North Texas where I'm at, um, right near the Oklahoma border. It's really beautiful, um, even with its flatness. It's very green. So, yeah, that's kind of my pros and cons and how I ended up going from California to Texas. Absolutely. And I, you know, I lived in Texas for about three years and definitely the, the property taxes are just ridiculous. Uh, that, that would be something if I were to ever move back, that would definitely be my main point of contention is doing anything and everything possible to get the property taxes reduced because they, they are just astronomical. But with, uh, with California and really the, the whole Pacific Northwest, uh, I haven't really been to SoCal, just, just for transparency's sake, but I've been up to the Redding area of California, I've been all through Oregon and in most of Washington State. I've, I've at least driven through there. And it, it is so sad because that area, it, like that whole region is just beautiful. But I, I mean, it, it's getting trashed. You have so much homelessness and the cities are not, they're they're not fulfilling their end of the bargain with keeping everything clean and up to up to snuff. So, certain parts of the city stink. Uh, they're dirty, especially like in Seattle. Uh, there's so much stuff to do up there, and I mean it's it's right there on the coast, and it, it parts of it are so beautiful, but parts of it are just so disgusting. It it's like not even worth going there anymore. So how how bad had that gotten in your part of California before you moved? started to get really bad where I lived. So I lived in a little suburb of Los Angeles that if you didn't know you were in Los Angeles and you kind of drove around my neighborhood, you wouldn't think you were living in Los Angeles. Um, it was that so like suburbanite kind of little, sm- had a very small town feel to it. But when I left the local park where I used to play, because uh, I grew up there, my parents grew up there, uh, my grandparents moved there in the late 1930s. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty generational um, out of Los Angeles, and which a lot of people can't say. Uh, and my local park was pretty much overrun with um, homeless people, um, which they have now called the unhoused. Um, they're trying to change the language as they tend to like to do with their new speak. So I think one of my friends who still lives there, at last count, there were about 100 tents in the park. 
um, with homeless people living in them. Um, they've had to have the fire department called um, because massive areas were being caught on fire from all of the trash and refuse that was being left around. Um, there's been assaults. There's been uh, rapes. There's been shootings. Um, and these are all in my, my nice little tiny neighborhood. Um, there's a store nearby. Uh, the store manager was assaulted by a homeless woman. Over in my local market, um, there was a strong arm robbery on the corner three blocks from my house. I'd be driving my kids to school and you'd see the back windows of cars smashed out from being robbed. And it was just story after story you'd hear on next door of, this homeless person had done this and I was, you know, my car got broken into here and, oh, don't even get me started on the catalytic converter thefts um, that were pretty much daily going on. So <laughs> it was getting really bad and you'd look at this neighborhood and you'd look at the housing prices and you'd go, no way, but it was happening and the crime was starting to get out of control and the local politicians don't want to do anything about it. Well, except deprive you of your firearm right, so you can't defend yourself, right? Yeah, I can't even get a CCW permit. Um, that, that they've made that pretty much impossible because they're so anti-gun in the state of California. Um, I think they're. I've seen a little bit of a glimmer happening with some of the county sheriffs uh, starting to be like, "No, you're going to enforce law and order." And starting to be able to, they were going to start giving out more CCW permits because they actually admitted that people needed to protect themselves. So you can kind of see the irony in that, that it has to get really, really bad before they realize that, oh, maybe people should be able to carry weapons to, for self-defense. So, but yeah, they, they, they try so hard to get rid of the guns too. And I'm a huge Second Amendment supporter, so that didn't really resonate well with me either. Well, but we got to go to the state constitution, uh, and I'm only plugging that because of the nature of the show. So we got to go to the state constitution, and I, actually, unfortunately, California state constitution has no provision whatsoever for firearm ownership. So that that's something that people who choose to stay there they need to fix that. Uh, they they need to get on their representatives' butts and and nip that in the bud. And unfortunately, at this point, that may not be a realistic option. But that that, in my opinion, that's where we need to make our appeal. Because if we get in bed with the incorporation doctrine, who knows what the outcome may be with that? It's become such one party rule in in California that trying to pass any type of legislation. Um, protecting gun rights for the individual is pretty much probably never going to happen until they implode uh which i i don't say that happily but j just as a matter of fact until they implode you're you're probably 100 percent right uh actually I'll, I'll say you are most likely 100 percent right so but we'll go ahead and wrap up here i do want to thank you again so much for your time and for joining us on our show today um do you have any other items that you want to plug or any events or anything um, yeah, so I've, on MeWe, I have created a, uh, I call it the Texans of the TWSE, the Tom Woods Show Elite Group, that, or I've, I've started to put out my ideas for my one county, one vote um, idea. Um, I probably should make a larger group for people that aren't part of the TWSE, so <laughs> that more people can join. Um, but you can look for that on MeWe. 
Um, if you're on MeWe, uh, it's a private group right now, so you'd have to be a contact, which is the MeWe version of a friend like you'd find on Facebook. So my, uh, my contact name there is, is um, kind of my other name. I go by Crystal Methodist is my uh, moniker there. So if you want to look me up, you can find me that way and make me a contact and I can add you to my uh, Texans group for my one county, one vote project. Absolutely. And folks, if you're not on MeWe, you definitely need to switch over. Uh, Facebook is awful. The censorship, the mass spying and data mining is terrible. MeWe is basically all the good parts of Facebook and none of the bad, at least so far. So if you haven't already made that transition, definitely hop over. And Crystal Methodist, thank you again so much for your time and doing this interview on the Jeffersonian tradition. And for the audience, please remember, if you found value in the podcast, to consider contributing to the show You can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or if you prefer, you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in the show notes page. Any contribution amount helps, and thank you to everyone in advance who decides to do so. And with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.